Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. In all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Steve Melvin. Now, Steve is the principal and owner of Atelier Architecture and Design, which is a London-based firm, so northwest London. Typically, their work resides around a sort of 50 mil radius from uh, their offices. However, plenty of projects abroad as well. Um, And they have a fabulous niche, which is very close to my heart, which is uh, modern rural leisure uh, being the architectural niche that they, you know, excel in, which we will discuss while we're on the podcast. Um, so, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Adrian. It's wonderful to be here. Mate, I'm so looking forward to this chat. There's so many pieces of your personality and your background that I want to dig into. And I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think listeners will find it fascinating. Uh, just, you know, here you are, you're this uh, bratty little kid, I'm sure. And um, with that, both your parents were architects. Tell me about yep. this journey in life 
that took you, that led you to become an architect as well. It's, I mean, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, as they say. You ended up following in their footsteps. So tell me about your mother yeah. first and then yeah, your father absolutely. and then how, how you came out of all that. Well, the, the first thing before I talk about my mother and my father would be to say it was almost like I was destined. Yeah. And I think for 25 to 30 years, I was resisting that destiny. And in the end, I just slotted into it. But I took my own route and it was incredibly roundabout, <laughs> which uh, I can go into. We'll go um, into yes. that. <laughs> but yes, I mean, they, they, they were both architects. Um, they met at Frederick Gibbard's office, architectural office in London. Um, I think my mother trained in Kingston and my father was at um, Poly of Central London at the time, which has become Westminster University. And they, so they met at Gibbards and then it, and my father ended up setting up his own practice in the late 50s, early 60s. And they, um, uh, they, they did fantastically well together and, and grew a big practice and were very successful, a uh, number of awards and publications and so on. How nice. How nice. Um, out of that, your father started the practice. Is that because of the times, you know, like in that 60s where a woman probably still couldn't get a bank account in their own name? Or was it just by nature of he was the stronger personality? A, a bit of both. He, he was a very strong personality. He was very bold. And talking to some of his earliest colleagues, people who grew up with him, went to university with him, and then some of whom became partners in his practice, talking to them in later years, it was clear that he had, yeah, he had a lot of, he had a lot of cojones and confidence. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was also the times, it was a brave new world, it was post the war, yeah. it was, um, you know, technology, concrete, steel, and Glass. architects... Mm. glass and in those mm. days architects could get away with a lot more than they can now you know they were under less scrutiny they were given more free reign they had their well, nobody scales. knew what they would do <laughs> yeah, well, yes <laughs> and yes. on a broad I mean, spectrum you know, a client would sign up a, a yeah. client would sign up and um you know then they would end up with the the architect's designs and i and i'm not sure how much the client had to say uh with the process but it's yeah. very different now it's very yeah. different now uh, well, it's a different, yes, everything's different now in that respect. It's interesting, though, because it you know, would have been full on in the mid-century era. And so, you know, where you live in a space where there's a lot of very, very traditional and historic architecture, whether they've got to create, you know, the modern era of architecture as well, because it was, there was opportunity because, as you say, it was post-war. It was, there was a lot going on and there was a lot of rebuilding still happening and, and, yep you know, new methods, new everything that were in that space. So as far as an environment to grow up in, they would have been pushing the envelope. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, how fascinating. And back in the day, the reason I said, tell me about your mother first, was because I can't imagine that there were, was the ratio of women architects to men architects must have been hideously small. And she had a hard time. She yeah. had a hard time. She actually failed, I think, two or three times. She was failed in her professional exam at the RABA. And we are pretty sure that it was just misogyny. It was just sexist. Yeah, she wore a skirt, not trousers kind of yes. thing. Yeah, 100%. Yes. And she was talented. She was very good at drawing. Um, and she, she got it in the end. 
Um, but the, what I want to say to you about my mum, actually, is while she was a student with one of, I think, her, one of her part two student colleagues from Kingston, they had Lamberettas, not Vespers, Lamberettas. Mm-hmm. And they travelled into Rome on Lamberettas. I think what they did is they um, took a train with their Lamberettas on to north of the Alps. And then they rode over there. This is in the 50s. Okay. Yeah, wow. They rode over there, over the Alps in their Lambrettas, and then down, stopping on route, I'm sure, and yep. then down into Rome. And the two of them stayed in some um, Catholic convent, you know, which had a curfew at 10 p.m. And they're in Rome <laughs> for a month. Um, but that's how adventurous my mum was. I mean, you can imagine a, a woman, two young ladies doing that in the 50s. It was yep. quite a big deal. Really. Yep, she had the kahunas, man. <laughs> but part of that's probably why she um married your father as well there's probably a a, a strength that they both needed to be able to match each other yes Mm. yes so so tell me about this um this journey that uh, because you didn't want to take a straight line to your destiny you decided that you'd uh, get a bit of fabric along the way (laughs) a bit of learning tell me about that piece of the journey Yes. Jesus, where do I start? Um, okay, so I've always loved the outdoors from a young age. Initially, it was more centered around nature and nature studies. So I used to, I was particularly fascinated with mammals. I wasn't a bird watcher. I wasn't one of those people that particularly went after insects. I used to love mammals. And I joined um, a... So, so when so, you say mammals, like deer and badgers and yes um, yes but in my case i was particularly interested in two at the time were very rare mammals in the uk the the otter and the pine martin the pine martin Mm -hmm. is still very rare but the otter now is made recovery thank goodness yeah and i joined something called the otter trust but i used to go on holidays when when my parents went away for example we'd go to the lake district quite a lot and i always used to sniff out places where i should try and go and track you know, otters and pine, pine martins. martins. And I, saw, I saw otters in the wild, but I never saw, I've seen pine martin, but but um, only in a more controlled environment, not yep. by my yep. tracking. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I was, at, um, I was at school and there was a nature reserve at school. And I took it upon myself at quite a young age, probably about the age of 11, of wanting to keep a logbook of visiting the nature reserve daily and making notes on birds I saw, on um, taking samples of water from, there were ponds in the nature reserve, taking mm-hmm. samples of, of water from the pond and then analysing it in microscopes to see what, what life I could see and really trying to keep a log of all this. So I, had, I was this kind of fascinating, a naturalist, I suppose, yeah. at the time. And then when I was at um, secondary school, I um, was naturally more interested in sciences, um, particularly chemistry and, and biology. But at the same time, there was this kind of influence from my family of arts are the way to go, son. Arts are the way to go. And I had this sort of conflict building up in me and confusion um, yeah. of, yeah, do I really need to choose between arts and science? In the end, my A-levels, I ended up studying, it was a conflict. I mean, I studied English, geography, and, and biology, um, and in, in, in many ways, I'm sad I didn't stick more to my guns with science. But um, 
so, so, so there's this strand of loving the outdoors and nature and so on. At the same time, it's, it's sort of around 14, 15, I really got into climbing, mountain climbing, technical climbing with ropes and stuff. I uh, absolutely loved it. And m- my parents had been taking me to the Lake Strip from a young age. And I think from probably about the age of four, I had started fell walking initially in Wellington boots. And then eventually they bought me fell walking. So I was walking up these fells in the Lake Strip, Coniston Old Man. So, so just before you keep going there, just to sorry to interrupt it, just because we have a large audience in America and Australia and New Zealand, explain what fell walking is. It's um, hill walking. It's yeah. hill walking. Fells are what the Lake District calls its hills. It's hills, And yes. they are somewhere between a hill and a mountain, so they call them fells. So, yes, it's a Lake District term, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I used yeah. to live close to the Lake District, so I'm I'm familiar with it. Um, but I, I I suddenly went, nobody's going to know what the hell you're talking about unless they actually know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. one of the places I'm sure rock climbing started in a number of countries, including the Dolomites. But there there was a faction of climbers in the Lake District in the 17 early 1800s. And the British, of course, tried to make out that this was the birth of the sport of rock climbing. Whether or not that's really true is another matter. But yes, there's very good rock climbing in the Lake District. And I got into that at that time as well. So I've got this outdoors, this nature, conflict between science and the arts. At the same time, my parents used to drive me to Sicily, probably from about the age of six, seven, almost 10 years. We used to drive every year in a Volkswagen van, uh, all the family, and we'd take tents. Two people would sleep in the van and the rest would be in tents. We'd camp on route and we'd treat ourselves on the one, one night on the way out and one night on the way back. We'd stay in a posh hotel and we'd go, and, we'd go to Venice or we'd go Florence, we'd go to Rome or we'd go to Siena, um, Naples. I remember one year we went to Vesuvius and Pompeii. Um, and it was fascinating. We'd take this route, we'd drive over the Alps, we'd stop in the Alps to camp, and then we'd go down, visit these cultural places. And then we'd spend two weeks in Sicily. And it would essentially be a beach holiday, but my parents, of course, would drag, drag us off also to see some of the ancient sites in Sicily. And Sicily, for anybody who doesn't know, is incredibly rich, probably the richest cultural island in the world, in the sense that it's got Syrian, Phoenician, um, Norman, Roman, Greek, I don't know what else. It's got the birth of the mafia. It's, it's just incredibly complex cultural piece of cultural gem. As well as and, a piece um, of amazing landscape. And also the landscape is amazing, mm. it, yes, and, and cultural landscape, but also physical landscape. Mm. And, yeah, so we used to go there and we spent two weeks there. And, 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 and so coming back to your original question, you know, what was my route? So I can remember a particular moment when I was sitting with my mother in a, in a cloister on the edge of Palermo in a place called the, the Cathedrale Monreale and the cloister of Monreale. Um, and I think it's at that very moment where something struck a chord with me at a deep level, which I didn't realise at the time, but I've only picked up later, in fact, relatively recently, that something shifted in me in my consciousness to become aware of the need to orchestrate space to help people adapt to the world and how through orchestration of space uh, you can help people and guide people and influence people in a positive way. And it's an extraordinary um, uh, building 
this yeah. particular building because it is a blend of Christian and Moorish. So it's Christian and Arab architecture. It's at a time when obviously they were at peace and not at war, which is pretty rare. I was about to say it must have um, been a moment in time. Exactly. So there's something very special about that 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 for a start, and and it's it's very very beautiful. I mean, it has parallels with the Alhambra, um, but it is its own piece. And and as I promised you, Adrian, I'm going to send you some some pictures. Yeah, I'm so but, keen. But that as a pure moment. Um, you know, also draws me into this idea of uh, 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 what was my route. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a series of these different tangents, if you like, pulling pulling me in. Mm. Um, mm. Um, um, yeah, fascinating. Uh, and, and and as you say, a moment that maybe um, kind of ticked that box that your your awareness suddenly took it on, and then from your awareness taking it on. Um, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously. Um, and I, I, won't, I want to talk about subconscious and conscious mind with what you do as well and, um, and how it informs things. But, um, yeah, maybe that was like a, a, a point when that sudden awareness was uh, in place. And then later, as you developed it, uh, you know, there's, it's interesting you were saying about you know, I mean, that was when you were saying about eight years old. Um, and then by the time you were, you know, 14, 15, you were, again, back in nature, hunting down otters and well, I shouldn't say hunting, hunting to observe otters tracking, and yeah. Yeah, tracking. Yeah, tracking. That's a better word. Tracking otters and um, pine martens. Um, again, huge awareness of landscape huge awareness of uh, like detailed awareness of of mm. where you are mm. and then that sort of um moves into you know you're fell walking and climbing and then you're an ice climber and so on and so on we'll talk a little bit about that as well but again this seems to be like a a bit of a recurring theme steve <laughs> <laughs> it's really um, lovely to hear you tying that together adrian because <laughs> For me, it's obviously spread out over a number of years and a jumble of yeah of, of experience know, yep of experience and so it's quite hard to string things together and see that coherence. But yeah, for you to comment on <laughs> in that way is 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 really lovely and and helpful. Yeah. Well, it, it it's interesting because it just it stands out in your journey, and um, I think uh, I, I'm going to segue to the other to another piece but it will tie back into this, which is tell me about experiencing ME and um, mm. your experience with that, because this mm. is going to, I'm going to put a tie I'm going to do a loop. I'm going to do a loop around mm. and try and put a bow around something here. We'll see. Um, yeah, I think you've me. seen through me already. Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about that experience. <laughs> Of suffering from um, ME and, and, you know, massive fatigue, etc. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so when I was in my teens, actually 17, I contracted glandular fever. And I never really As, as many kids it. do, eh? As a lot of kids yes, do yes, around that big, age. It's pretty common. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so I got it in when I was 17 and it kind of disappeared for a bit. And then it came back when I was doing my A-levels uh, six months later. 
and basically it never really left from that point. Right, so it was just I, lingering I, in your system. Yeah. And then I was, it was about five years from the age of 18 to 23, I was dragging myself around. So I, I had a year out, um, but then I went to university and we can talk about that in, in a bit. But I went, I actually started two courses before I transferred into architecture. But anyway, I was dragging myself around and, and, and whilst my parents were concerned, they were also quite uh they didn't want me to waste time they wanted me to carry on and, and, and get on with my life so they couldn't really understand but they did try to arrange for medical um, um consultations mm-hmm. and i had two or three one of which was my local gp but then two were with private consultants harley street and doctors. They, yeah yeah basically and they could, you know, they said, oh, there is this, this phenomena of young people, you know, who don't really get over the angular fever and it becomes something, you know, known as post-viral fatigue. And there isn't really anything we can do about it. And actually, there's nothing really wrong with you. you just, just go to bed. To rest. <laughs> just yeah. go to bed and rest and then you'll get over Anyway, went on like this, and I just got worse and worse and worse. And at the age of 23, I was in my year out from architecture school, and I was working in London. And um, I'd, I'd had to do some extra coursework for uni whilst I was working. And I remember working late one night, and I just suddenly felt really awful. I had a splitting headache, sweating all over, and I went to bed anyway. Long story short, I got on the waiting list of an expert who um, was an ME expert, the Royal Free. Uh, hospital in London um, physician and he diagnosed them at that point he says yes you've had post-viral fatigue but now you've got a secondary infection um, which is what ME is basically it's your immune system packs up and it lets in a virus that everybody has around them all the time so Mm -hmm. it's a very common virus Mm -hmm. but when your, your immune system breaks down it lets the virus in and once you've got it it's incredibly difficult you can't get rid of it through conventional means the only way you can get rid of it is is to rest is 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 to um is for your immune system to recover and for your immune system to recover you need very deep metabolic rest so this physician said to me he said um you know how are you resting how are you um because basically sitting in front of the tv is not resting resting. exactly so i I, I said to him well i don't really know i want to know how to rest effectively and said well I don't recommend it to everybody, but seeing as you're open, I'm going, I'm going to recommend you a meditation technique. So he actually recommended uh, transcendental meditation. So which TM, is the famous, yeah. TM mm-hmm. which is the famous meditation the Beatles mm-hmm. learned back in the 60s, mm-hmm. you probably know. Mm-hmm. And um, he says there's more clinical evidence on TM than any other meditation technique to demonstrate that it lowers the metabolic rate during meditation period. It lowers the metabolic rate twice as low as deep sleep. And he says there are clinical trials. So I was sold on that. And I thought, wow, yes, brilliant. So he said, he put me in touch with the organization and uh, my parents were very skeptical, um, but uh, they obviously were concerned about me being unwell. (laughs) And and, and hearing from a royal free physician that he Mm -hmm. recommended that obviously gave him some kudos. So I learned it, and um, but the extraordinary thing was I got a lot, lot worse before I got better. So I got from the condition where I was basically dragging myself around to work or to study, just feeling tired and not myself. 
I basically got to the point where I was in bed after about three months of starting to meditate. I was in bed for two years. And for 14 months, in the middle of those two years, I couldn't walk, talk, read or write. I was virtually in a coma. I sat up to eat half a meal a day. I had to pee and everything else by yeah. the, you know, in a pot by the side of the bed. I had to be looked after um, at home. I was at home at that point. So your mother and was in, looking in all, after you? or Yeah, so yeah. my mother looked after me. So in all, I had four years out from after that year out. I had four years of illness before I went back to university to finish. So, yes. Yeah, wow. And basically, Phenomenal story. That, yeah, and that last year I spent in a Tibetan Buddhist community uh, in Scotland because the whole experience of meditating and recovering and seeing the physical benefit of meditation just got me so intrigued. And I really got interested in, in Buddhist philosophy. And mm -hmm. then I just decided, right, I wanted before, I was kind of well enough at that point to go back to university. I said, no, I want to sidestep. I want to be. I don't want to push myself and chase my tail. I want to be. So then I lived in this Tibetan Buddhist community for a year. It's, it's in Scotland. It's a couple of the people who escaped from Tibet at the same time as the Dalai Lama mm -hmm. um, in the 50s. And mm -hmm. they set up uh, one center in Scotland and they set up another center in Woodstock in North America. Oh, okay. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. There's, um, quite, a, there's quite a Buddhist community in um, Bath, in the city of Bath. Um, yes. Yeah. I, I, I used to live in the city of Bath and um, hang out with a large group of Buddhists there. Well, nice. not a large group. I hung out regularly with Buddhists, like weekly with Buddhists there and spent time um, and yeah. then, you know, when they would be making mandalas and stuff like that at the community, it's just up by the top of the circus. Yes. yes yeah, yes, they're, yes. They're, they're headquarters. Yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, at, um, so that's still very important to me. Is I, I carry uh, on meditating now. In I was, that fitness. was going to be my question was, you know, yeah. you're, so you carry it as a practice. And um, do you, oh, well. We could go down a very long rabbit hole here. We'll save it for another podcast. <laughs> um, but is it a daily practice? Is it a... Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's twice daily. Twice yep. daily. Um, yeah, cool. When I wake up, and ideally um, around five or six in the evening before I have my dinner. But since having a kid, uh, I have a child, uh, well, he's nine now. But yep. since that lifestyle kicked in, it's been very difficult to do this, this kind the, of 6 p.m. This... meditation. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I always find it fascinating when there's plenty of people who meditate but don't reveal that they do, um, <coughs> and whether true. they have a practice or whether they have a yeah, often on um, you know, kind of in and out of it is the other thing. And uh, but again, it strikes me with you that um, if it if it wasn't a practice, it wouldn't be worth doing. Um, because if something's totally. worth doing, it's worth doing right. Um, totally. Where I wanted totally. to go with that, because, hey, you know, there'll be other listeners here of, um, you know, either experienced ME or are experiencing something like ME. And it's a big story. It's a big journey. You know, it's, it's like mm -hmm. from bedridden um, to, to coming back and obviously forming an architectural practice at some point and carrying on from there. The other is, is that you're a climber. Now, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Tom Kundig, who's also a climber. 
and okay. um, from Olsen Kundig in Seattle. And yes. Uh, yes. fascinating, like we had a few parallels that um, were around this climbing thing and you being a climber, um, again, requires you to be very observant of your space and very observant of, of what's around you and what's changing around you, how it is. Um, it requires you to be in the moment because if you're not in the moment, um, yeah, you'll be in another moment very soon. Shit <laughs> yeah, shit happens. Um, I'm trying to think of what Tom Kundig's uh, little thing was. Um, it's something like, it's on the podcast. Um, oh, it's something like that shit happens. It's like, no, it'll come to me. If, I, if it comes to me, if not, I'll send it to you. But anybody else who's listening, go back and listen to my podcast with Tom Kundig and you'll hear it in there. But it's, uh, yeah. it, it's around, you know, when things are going, oh, yeah, it's something like for common sense to prevail, common things need to happen. And, mm. um, and it's a climbing thing. It's from climbing. You know, when, when shit's going wrong, common sense doesn't usually prevail. And so you've got to get back to common things happening. Like this is this is this environment, and it's what happens in it. It strips. It strips. It strips down the humdrum and strips away the, <laughs> Gets the noise. Very, very real. Yeah, very I quick. mean, you, you know the story of the two brick climbers in Sayula Grande in Peru in 1984, where one of them broke his leg high on the mountain, and the other guy tried to lower him down, and he got stuck on the edge of a cliff. The one who had the broken leg and the other guy had no way of telling what was going on couldn't pull him back up the other guy with a broken leg couldn't climb back up the rope couldn't push it back up the rope and the guy at the top was being pulled off um and they were like that for about an hour they were kind of frozen to the mountain and neither of them knew what they could do and in the end the guy on the top thought well it's either one of us dies or both, or both. of us dies and he just took his knife out, cut the rope, and the guy on the other end fell in a crevasse. And the guy at the top dug a snow hole, slept the night, walked round in the morning, saw where his mate had obviously fallen, shouted for him, didn't hear anything. Obviously, assumed he was dead. Walked back to base camp. Several days later, his mate crawls back into camp just before he's about to leave with an absolutely shattered leg at that point, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. and totally dehydrated and, you know, back from the dead, basically. It's, the, the, it's a film and a book called Touching the Roid. Yeah, and, right. Uh, I think I've seen that. Simon Yates and Joe Simpson are the names. And it's just, it, it just strips it down to that, you know, survival and the moment and practical decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually met, I've not met Joe, who's the guy who had the broken leg, but I've met Simon on the hill in, yeah, in wow. Scotland a few years ago. And he's such a modest, quietly spoken, yeah. um, fantastic guy. And he does a lot of quite exploratory climbing. He's not interested in the limelight, but he goes to Antarctica, South Georgia, and does very remote uh, stuff. Yeah, um, wow. Fantastic guy. Fantastic guy. Um, so climbing is so central to me and my 
uh, passion. And it's so difficult to understand and describe why. I think there's something very special about climbing as an activity and sort of going upwards. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's something very special about going up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's quite well, clearly people like building tall buildings as well. So well, there's, there's got to be something. Well. There's got to be something in it. That. Yeah, and and I suppose when I was uh, with the a- AMI training and mindset training, I did actually do some quite interesting work with Richard Richard Petrie mm-hmm. about stripping down. You know what 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 there's something quite um, quite connected between climbing and architecture, and for me for me I described it as you are confronting um, geology, gravity, and weather. Because a building, you're dealing with the <laughs> ground and you're dealing with gravity and you're dealing with weather. And as a climber, particularly in a high mountain environment, those three forces are probably the, you know, they, they are the most important things you're dealing with. And you might be pulling on, you know, a fragile hanging icicle, or you might be with an ice axe or you might be rock climbing and pulling on a tiny rock crystal mm-hmm. crystal that's sticking out of a piece of granite um and you're up close and personal with those those elements you know, yeah. the ice or the, the mm-hmm. crystal, and you are fighting gravity and you know you've got this weather environment yeah you're reliant on them to some degree or to a large degree yeah. as well Mm. Yeah. Oh, totally. You, you, you know, you mm. could, you, you know, there are instances where you can't climb something because you haven't got those. Yes. Uh, those things there, um, and and obviously climb, seek out the lines where there's just enough for you to get up. You know, that's mm. the, that's the secret. I think um, with it because you have um, pursuits and uh, things that allow you to, well, not allow you, demand demand that you live in the moment um when it comes to architecture how do you translate those things that demand you to live in the moment for survival and for pleasure you're using them for pleasure using them for you know their challenge and their pleasure and their their goal setting um how does that inform you when you're getting to your architectural practice and design, just actually jump out of just the practice. Don't care about practice. Design, actually, when you when you're in in the design mode, and you know your design is flowing. Interesting. I mean, I think one of the key things for me in the architecture I want to create is 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 is, is exhilaration. And clearly, mm-hmm. when you're in the mountains, whether you're exhilarated by the view and the shapes of the mountains and the definition of a blue sky and a glacier and a ice face. Yeah. Um, it's exhilarating. So there's the exhilaration of the physical, what you're looking at. And there's obviously also the exhilaration of the feelings you have in being in such an extreme environment and surviving. So exhilaration is one. And I think on the back of that, there is, it's never when you get to the top of the mountain that you feel that sense of complete calm and peace because any climber who knows his sort knows that the hardest bit is getting back down. Oh, it's about to so say. So you're never relaxed. 
I, I never like... relax until you're <laughs> yeah. back down. And so many climbers die when they switch off on the mountain. A hundred percent. the hardest bit. Yeah, you're only so, probably a quarter of the way through your journey. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and by that point, you're knackered anyway. So the whole thing becomes more tortuous and you are, you know, having to constrict that much harder to stay in the moment. Mm. But I suppose, yeah, then when you get down, there is that sense of contentment and peace. And that certainly runs through in what I desire to put into architectural expression. So a combination of this exhilaration and tension, but also calm and peace. Um, and interestingly, I, I'm going to go slightly on the tangent. Yeah, but when I me. was... When I was at uni, okay, so I started studying anthropology. You know, I was resisting my father's encouragement, still wanted to keep away from the arts. So I started studying anthropology and I did a year of that. And then I actually transferred to do landscape architecture, not architecture. Oh, wow. Landscape okay. architecture. Yeah. Probably because I, I'd been in South Africa the year before for a year in Africa and I'd just been absolutely transported by landscapes. And I think uh -huh. at that point I realized, well, look, I love the outdoors. I love I love the landscapes in South Africa. I love climbing. Uh, what isn't there a way I can kind of encapsulate that and put that into a career path? So you know, landscape architecture. And then it was at the end of a year of landscape architecture. I was kind of thinking, well, hang on, I'm a bit hungry here. Um, I'm enjoying this course, but I I kind of think that a training in architecture will give me, if you like, a more technical and technological way of handling space and form. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea at that point was always to come back into landscape architecture. And I never particularly wanted to. I still don't particularly want to be an architect. I am an architect, but I still don't particularly want to be an architect. I, um, and, and I always thought, well, you know, working with landscape is, is really what I want to do. And, and more of the lines of a landscape facilitator, landscape steward, you know, that kind of thing. And, yes, it happens to be that I might be doing buildings in that landscape. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, sorry, I've gone on another tangent. So coming back to the first tangent. Um, so I started studying, and when I was studying landscape architecture in a library, I came across this wonderful book on Louis Kahn, yep. um, which was a series of photographs of some of his buildings with beautiful, poetic, philosophical sentences that Louis had written under some of these photos. And at this point, of course, I had post-viral fatigue and I was dragging myself around. And anyway, I saw this one photo and it was from the inner court, so external courtyard within the Kimball Art Museum uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, of yep. Louise. And it said underneath the photo, it just said, just the place to be. And it absolutely knocked me over at that time. And I, uh, I don't think at the time I really understood why, but it's all about, yeah, it's all about being and it's all about slow down the noise, slow down this action. You yeah. don't have to do anything. You can just be in this reality. And yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, in, fact, my, in, in fact, that's God, everything. It, it is. It, 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 it is. Because it is. if you don't realize that, you, you, it's, life's not worth living. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, that, that is where the life starts is. Yes. At that point, yes, has to be at that point. Absolutely, it, yeah. it's interesting. I've done um, different trainings over the years, um, and one of them was uh, the ability to drop into my alpha brainwave function, um, which, of course, TM is 
somewhat similar to that and all meditation is and um that thing of being able to be in the moment and then be in flow in the moment as well so that and you know if from a buddhist um perspective to become molten um you know it is this next sort of level of that where you you you're all your particles are part of every other particle you know this yeah anyway we won't go too far into that but um the ability to be at that moment and be in that moment i was talking with some friends the other day and they um she's a meditation teacher and she's a yoga teacher and and has quite a practice around that's written books on it etc and I said, oh, well, you know, like, here's me. I'm um, you know, reasonably highly strung and stuff. And I uh, said, oh, no, no, no. I, you know, I fire an anchor and I'm an alpha um, brainwaves from the minute I first uh, go onto a client's property until I leave, maybe longer than yeah. that after I leave. And she's like, what? And I said, oh, well, you know, I, I switch it on. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, that's how I spend my time with them is because I don't need to spend my time consciously. I do. I need to appear conscious, but I need to be an alpha to allow all the nuances to be mm. of value to me. And I, I would guarantee that when you climb, you're an alpha brain. You're, whilst you're operating externally in beta, you're operating yes. internally in alpha. Yes. You're, you're, yeah. Otherwise, you don't come back, and um, yeah, just and, and also in the like the the sense of you know when you're doing your architectural practice and when you're designing, like I do it when I'm about to design something as well. I think of the client and I go into not necessarily a meditative state or anything. I'm still appear to be fairly conscious with everything else that's going on, but I t- I switch myself into that so that mm. I'm I'm, I'm Whilst I'm in this moment doing it, I've surrounded myself with the moment that passed, that that got me to this point and, and yep. blocked the other out. And so I, with your background, I'm, I'm like fascinated as we're going through how these things are linking um, and this total love of the outdoors. Like, I mean, the easiest way... Uh, to probably get you to engage in anything is, is not to sit in an office and do it. Um, it would be to mm, take, mm. it would be to take you for a walk and, uh, and then it that's would have true. to be that's in so the mountains. True. Yeah. That's yeah. so true. And yeah. I'd love to have a practice in the mountains. I've always wanted to live somewhere yeah. in the mountains. You so, can imagine, yeah. you know, almost I can imagine a practice for you in the mountains where um, it's a very, you know, just a very not rudimentary, but, um, I'm going to say basic, and it's not the word I'm looking for, but basic. I know what you mean. Though. Basic yeah. space, yeah. and essentially everything that can be done outside of that space is what matters, yeah. and everything yeah. that yeah. can be done inside that space is only what has to happen. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there's a. I'm yes. a big fan of Yvonne Sherard, um from Patagonia as well, and I don't know whether yeah, you've ever yeah, read yeah. the book. Yeah, well, because he's a climber. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you've read the book, he's a dude. He's a oh, dude. the guy, yeah, he's inspirational to say the least. Like incredibly, um, his book "Let My People Go Surfing" 
I don't know whether you've read it, but um, it's a. I haven't read it. It's one. It's on my list at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's a on my list great book. Yeah. A great book, and it, as a business person and as a person who runs a practice and therefore um, has other people who work for them, it's a it's a fascinating book, and just how he approached all that and and does approach it. Um, I've got a couple of last questions. Um, because we could we could keep talking uh, till the cows good, till we? the cows come yeah. home. Um, I'll tell you well, what, when it finishes, let's let's carry on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we will <laughs> for sure. Um, with it, one of them is around um, if you were if you were talking to somebody who was uh, someone who had had that similar kind of passion for the outdoors and living and also this is the this is the conundrum would be has is considering architecture or is doing architecture um, which is basically you know putting boxes and crap all over the landscape um, mm. to, to put people in a safer environment closer to the landscape um, and I, I look at architecture and I go, in some ways, it's just a, a pollutant. Um, mm. But then there isn't enough room and, and, and there isn't enough caves to, to put us all in. Um, <laughs> or, so, trees. <laughs> or trees. Or trees. Yeah. Are running out too. Yeah, trees are running out. Trees are running. Exactly. So if, if, if there was somebody listening, which I'm, I'm hoping there will be, that you could give a insight into this absolute passion and love of nature and exploration in it and being um and and being up close and personal with it and architecture what would it be what would be something that you would tell them or tell your younger self well uh, I, I think I would try and encourage them not to take such a long path that I took. <laughs> so, <laughs> Move quickly. <laughs> they'd have to be very patient to go through that and they'd probably drop out, you know. So, yeah. yes, what's a way of stripping that down a lot? Um, really good question. Um, I would, I think the most important thing is the connection with the outdoors. So, that has to be the thing that does not get compromised. Um, you know, because without our connection to the outdoors, to nature, we're nothing. Um, and so that has to be nurtured. So I suppose you have to hope that um, with, with, a, with a potential paradigm shift, um, there is going to be more, more and more awareness of how to design and live with nature uh, and the environment um, such that there will be um, minds and teachers who will, who will be nurturing, nurturing people who have that. I mean, I think what you're saying to me is, is, is you're saying, you know, this person's coming to me and saying, look, I love the outdoors. Uh, I'm interested in design. How how can I do it in a responsible and environmental mm. way? Is that, there you go. Is that, this is the that, word I was yeah. looking for. Responsible yeah. so, and environmental. I think it has to partly yeah. well. 100%. Obviously, they, they've got the vision, but maybe mm -hmm. you've you, you've come to me kind of 
setting the tone that yes, maybe they have already got the vision, but how can that vision be nurtured and sustained? I think the first thing to say is really make sure that that connection to the outdoors is 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 not undermined, and hopefully with the paradigm shift that there is going to be more encouragement. There are going to be more and more minds who are who are connected, who want mm-hmm. people coming up to. And I think there are signs that's happening. I don't know it's happening quick enough, but it, it is, you know, there are signs that's happening. Um, and don't, um, there's no right way or wrong way to be a designer or an architect. So believe in yourself and follow your heart and, Use a core structure to, uh, to you know, to get through your qualifications, but but don't 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 sell out on that. You know? and, um, don't lose yourself to that. Stay true to exactly, who you are. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. try and actually, the best advice I could give is really seek out those people when you're studying, whether it's your student colleagues or the tutors. Once who, who you resonate with and people, you know, who you can have the kind of conversations, really crazy conversations about, you know, your your interest in the environment and so on. Uh, Stick out, hang out with those people. I think and, there's, and a, anything. there's a there's a thing in there. It's the people you can um, be in conversation with, as opposed to have a conversation with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and that yeah, yeah. you know yeah. that be that that be point because you're you're being in that moment and you're discovering and they're discovering and it's a journey together as opposed to yeah yeah, uh, I yeah, love, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it it's a great answer it's a it's a really nice answer it, it's i took um, a while to get there sorry you, you no, no not at all man though, not yeah. at all like it's a great question to put you right on the spot and say you know <laughs> yeah. what would what would that you know what would it look like another one is is um i think a question I'd love to you to answer for me is um, mindset, and obviously yours was somewhat forced upon you um, with ME, and then learning TM, and then you come across a guy like Richard Petrie from Architects Marketing Institute, um, who is I think like in all my years, he'd be probably one of the best mindset um, teachers that, or teachers or, yeah, teachers, coaches that I've ever come across. And I've been around plenty, but he just has a knack of he does. kind of just finding, peeling the onion and, and pushing the yeah. button, you know, like and opening it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, that experience with, with him and, uh, you you started to say before about it, but I'd love you to dig in a little more about that experience of A, being in something like AMI, where, you know, the, I get to meet people like you because I'm a member of it as well. Um, and, and, you know, like the, the value of, the, of, of that mindset stuff that Richard does with us all. Um, yeah, if there's comments you've got around that, I'd be really interested. For other people to listen to and understand, and you know, like you know, as I say, like people like Richard Dzeki and these guys, yep. Tony Masters, um, who are on the podcast, mm. who I've all met through AMI as well. Um, mm. but they've become part of the fabric of my life because of it. Uh, so my experience was absolutely critical, it was the best part of the AMI training mindset. 
Um, and um, I, I'm sure everybody experiences differently. But <laughs> I, when I was at university, I had that kind of spark and that fire to, uh, you know, find a niche and, and express myself in my niche and pull my experience into that niche in the work I did at university. And then it's very hard when you leave university and you have to get your head around business and you have to survive and you have a mortgage to pay and, you know, maybe you've got kids as well. And it, it's quite All tough. of and the above. <laughs> all of the above. Yeah, and, the above. And, and then it's quite tough depending on the people you're working with. You know, you might yep. have power games going on in the business you're working with and you're actually you're having to deal with personality issues which are suffocating your creativity. And it's just because of some bully or, you know, a group of bullies who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, probably feel threatened by your, your skill and your creativity and they don't want you to shine, uh, although they never admit that, you know, that, that that's what's going on. So, um, but the way around that is mindset training because it gives you the confidence to, it, 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 it really cuts through and gives you that clarity where you know who you are, what you want to be. Yes. Um, and once you know who you are and what you want to be, there's nothing stopping you because it's not really ego at that point. I mean, I suppose you could do it in an egotistical way. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's not about ego. It's just about who I am. You know, this is who I am. These are my experiences. And this is what I've got to say. And, you know. And, and this uh, is how you present it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think... Um, uh, Go go, and 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 I think Richard, as you say, has 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 a fantastic skill in 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 cutting and unlocking that. And not only that, he he then is able to have a conversation with you about it to draw it out further and develop it. Um, and I think that's really important that it's not just something that comes out of you; it's something that comes out of you, and it might be quite raw and crude and it needs refinement yes yeah and rich is very good at, at that um, yeah I th- as i say i think that he's you know he's a he's a world leader at that 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 like and i've been around a lot of people that are good at that he has an ability to just be in that space i was i was having um lunch with him recently and uh, i asked him about how he became an international cricketer and he said, well, you know, he said I was good at sports and I was a big guy and da-da-da-da-da. And he said, I realized I did want to do something. And um, it was one of the only professional sports. So, um, I, and I could have played, you know, many um, and I had choices. And uh, he said, so I decided it was going to be cricket. And he said, I, I knew, I just, I knew I was going to play for New Zealand. And I said to him, but how did you know? And he said, because I I made a decision. And he said, so mindset to me was something that was developed at a very young age. And he said, Mm. I just knew because I didn't give myself another choice. That was where I was going to be. Um, Yeah, pretty fascinating. My, my My other question, which would be our last one, would be, so with your practice, um, modern rural leisure. I want you to describe that to me um, as an maybe a, a project or maybe an ideal client or 
Just tell I'll me tell about, about projects. Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you about projects. I think because I'm struggling to. I'm still looking for my ideal client. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> I think there's plenty of them out there. But um, yeah, that that yeah. yeah, what how you approach a project and how it comes together and what happens from that would be really fascinating. Well, I'll give you yeah, I'll just give you a snapshot of of say three or four recent projects. Um, which are all within that niche. It's a bit of a dull term, isn't it? Modern rural leisure. I well, mean, it's just it, your, it, it's your one that it's typology, one, isn't it? it well, maybe, um, maybe, and that's why I wanted um, to ask you because um, there's more to it than that. Yeah, there's, there's hey, there's there's a guy here that I'm talking to, you know, who at eight years old discovers Christian and Moorish architecture, um, is prepared mm. to spend his time hunting or, or tracking otters. Um, was happy to climb up the side of mountains on, you know, like in, in ice and, in, in, you know, extreme situations. I didn't tell you about my extreme situation on the summit traverse of Mount Cook, did I? No, you didn't. you didn't. You didn't have time for that. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will come back to it another time. I know, okay. I, I, it would be, I, know, I know you've told me about it, but we didn't discuss it mm. here. And I go, it's yeah, a beautiful yeah. story. Um, yeah. But that modern rural architecture, um, yeah. Yeah. what does it really mean? What does that really mean when it's you that turns up to do it? Because it, that's the key that I'm getting to. Okay, well, I mean, I think it means, I'll tell you two philosophical things it means, and then I'll give you an example of four different projects. Okay, yep. that's probably the best. Okay, so cool. It, it means, very broadly, it means reconnecting people with nature and nature with people. And it means creating exceptional buildings in outstanding landscapes where the landscape leads. Um, demonstrating that we can live with nature love it that's what it means now, love typical example project uh, oh, before you is, tell me the projects i love mm. that term that you used the landscape leads mm. it's driven absolutely. by the environment it's driven by the landscape absolutely and it's not just the physical landscape you see but it's the history of that yeah, landscape yeah. the evolution of that landscape the spirit of that landscape what does that landscape want to be it may not want to be what it is right now you've got to revitalize it find find its roots find what it wants to be yeah you know yeah. As, as khan used to say what does the brick want to be yeah um so you can say you know what does this place want to be Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's understanding that. Um, so yes, four projects. Well, um, we did a, a question center recently, uh, um, an indoor horse arena, um, which is a glue lamb structure. Mm -hmm. It's a skeleton, mm -hmm. and it's glazed walls, and it's quite unusual because um, most people are scared to put horses into a glass room, which is basically what it is. And actually, we found in this space that the horses have been behaved differently and positively differently there than they would anywhere else. So they do things in there that they don't do outside and they don't do in their stables and, and, and the courtyard. They 
they really let themselves go, but in a in an environment where they feel very calm and very safe. So that's quite wow. interesting. Um, wow. So that's the question center. That would be a really uh, good one for a horse whisperer to to dig yes. into, wouldn't it? So I've got a lovely photograph of the um, stable hand, the main stable hand, who she's not a qualified horse whisperer, but uh-huh. she's probably as close as as any UK stable hand is to being a horse whisperer. And um, she has um, managed to pull around two or three tricky horses through using that uh, indoor arena, um, you know, that had uh, yeah. various issues, psychological yeah. issues. Um, and I've got a beautiful photograph of her just looking across, that she's holding the reins of the horse and the horse is standing there and she's just looking at it with about two meters between them. And it's just extraordinary picture. Send me that photo if you can. Yeah, do, and I'll put it. I'll put it up with the um, socials and stuff with the podcast. Yeah, let me let me make a note of that. So, how what was awesome. the other thing? I was oh yeah. So I was going to send you Monreale and Monreale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's one. The other is um, a nature retreat in Norway um, by a lake, which we've done a feasibility and concept design for, and we've got a lovely render done. It's not been built. Um, and that's about these lovely eco lodges in a beautiful forested environment. Uh, yeah, where you can feel, you can live and um, for a few days and, and feel close to nature. Um, I love then it. it makes me another... want to be there immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's something special about Norway, isn't there? It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. I love extraordinary the place. place yeah. In Norway. yeah, yeah. Um, then uh, post-production studio. I'm, I'm working on some post-production studios, so it's oh, it's okay. um, c- coming up to town planning in Greenbelt in um, the UK in Buckinghamshire, uh-huh. uh-huh. um, and it's. Uh, yeah, we're having fun with it. It's in AOMB, so Area of Outstanding Attributes in Greenbelt. And it's got um, quite a lot of um, kind of your classic um, black box spaces. It's got a theatre and then it's got some edit suites and scan rooms and stuff like that, which are all black boxes. Yes. But then it's got a foyer area and, you know, sort of high-end admin where the MD is and where he entertains you know, wealthy film directors and well-known film directors. So it's got this mix of, of spaces and it's in this beautiful environment. And as you know, it's exceptionally difficult to build in Greenbelt in the UK. Yes. Um, so yeah. you have to produce uh, convincing design. <laughs> Argument, um, design. And, yes. and, and, and total. I mean, you're the perfect person for it. A total at oneness with the nature to be able to to be able to let this be what it's going to become um yeah. with all the sensitivities that are required to get that there yeah yes yeah it's yes. It, it's it's a that you know stuff like that where it's highly challenging and uh not unlike trying to ice climb or something um <laughs> As well, well that's as straightforward, yeah, that's exactly. Straightforward. That's really just simple. go up, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. This yeah. is more like the journey down <laughs> <laughs> into the ground. Yeah. And actually, interesting in this particular project, okay, we developed the concept which um, 
of is, is, is a wavy snake-like form. And I did research into uh, Aborigine, uh, the symbolism of the snake in yep. Aborigine uh -huh. culture, which uh -huh. is really important to do yep. with continuity, rebirth, and yep. it's particularly related to water and water in the landscape and healing of landscape to restore water. And the Chilterns, which is where this uh, post-production studio is, have been damaged by very poor land management, mixture of agriculture and an inappropriate, you know, um, residential and, and, and yep. urban urbanization. And a lot of chalk streams, which are the lifeblood of the Chilterns, have dried up. Um, so this, this symbolism of this, this snake, it kind of came to me intuitively first. And then when I actually looked into it and found this research on, on the power of the snake, and the positive symbolism of snake in culture, and in this case, Aboriginal culture, it, it suddenly started to make a lot of sense. And there is a well quite close to the site, which is a natural, you know, it's a well, but based on a natural spring. And the chalk stream is underground at that point. Um, it's just started to make a lot more sense. Um, it was quite it. fascinating. I yeah. love it. I love it. I had the most fascinating time uh, last year with uh, Glenn Murkett and uh, Peter Stutchbury. Mm. Um, yeah. Australian architects and Glenn, very famous, and so is Peter. Mm. Um, but I had a, a about oh, two hours. Peter and I went wandering over some land and mm. uh, discovering different things about it. And what a sage, you know, what an incredible mind mm. and an ability to be at one uh, with mm. the landscape and to. Mm feel history but then to use that intuition to go there's more here than that i don't know there's more there's more yeah. here i need to discover um yeah and you go back to you saying you know uh letting the land be what it what it wants to be you know what does this land want to be um and and that's a chapter it's a chapter in its history because the land will be constantly evolving as well and it took me back to walking with peter and um that sounds amazing where were you walking oh uh, in uh actually in northern new well not quite northern mid new south mid um new south wales and i was on a study tour with them for a week and uh a glenn Murkup study tour for a week and we were walking through um some landscape that had been farmed and and, and altered and stuff like that. And we were wow. looking at a project that as a group of us were working towards, um, which was to create a, a community center and, and set of, um, and swimming pool and stuff like this. There's some of it already existed, some of it didn't, um, but then to look at the entire landscape around that space and it was cold. It was winter. It was a, it was probably about two weeks ago compared to now. So it was cold and winter here. And um, yeah, we just got to spend. I think it was nine days or something like that uh, with a with a small group and just dig in and design and play and like play is design, of course. Oh yeah, an incredible, an incredible experience. Yeah, an incredible experience and, and visit some of the properties that they've done and all the rest. But then, I mean, that's, we all get to, well, we all can, if we choose, get to visit properties that people have created. Part of the, the pieces that is what, what informed the creation 
is the piece that we're looking for. Um, you know, was it just because it was a picture out of a magazine? And, or, you know, what would have informed the creation? And hopefully it's got this depth to it. And uh, I think the journey with you, the fascinating journey with um, you in this discussion has been that that is what underlies everything that you do. Everything, every step you take is underlied. The, the, the foundation of it is still the earth and then how that will react, what the earth will, will require from you. And then there's all the other things that happen along the way that are the regulation and everything that's, else that's that really comes out of it. That's really interesting that you've brought, you brought to that. That's, that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, it comes back to the earth. Um, Every, everything does. Yeah, Every, yeah. Everything then that you've discussed with me comes back to the landscape and nature, you know, what, what flourishes on that landscape and what struggles on that landscape and how to be intimately attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah. yeah um, I, I want to finish with yeah, a thanking you, but also just saying, I think that quote, "just the place to be," is so enlightening and inspirational and thought-provoking, and just you know, I go in my case, just let it be. Just, it, it, and Khan was writing that, what, probably in the 60s? Yeah. I, I don't know when he wrote that, but that's just extraordinary. Um, I have a, I I have mean, a, a fascination yeah. for music. I'm not a musician, but I have a fascination for music and stuff like um, that. And, and anything where somebody actually performs something. Because to get to the level of, of big performance, um, whether it be ballet, whether it be, you know, like musically, whatever, it takes a, a, an amazing amount of mixture of talent, um, honing the talent, and then being in the moment so that it creates the genius. Mm. Well, those things have to mix for it to become... Mm. That, that we that we get them, you know, like that we would go to a stadium with 80,000 other people to watch something. Those people yeah. have been down that journey. You may or may not get it when you go to that stadium, but they have been mm. down that journey and that journey will have every element of, it will go to Buddhism, suffering as well as mm. joy um, because mm. that's how it gets the fabric and the texture that allows it to be. Mm. Mm. And, um, yeah, what a... I've got to thank you, Steve. What a fabulous conversation, well, well, man. Thank you, Adrian. Yeah. <laughs> you drew we, it out. And, yeah. Oh, that's the joy of doing it. Um, we'll post everything up on the socials. We'll, yeah, I think there's just so many beautiful things in this discussion. Um, it's certainly, it's uh, about 7 a.m. here for me. So it certainly set up my day. Um, <laughs> oh, lovely. That's cool. I've, I don't I've, feel like going to bed. Actually, I'm <laughs> going to It's time to draw. <laughs> so, man, thank yeah, you so yeah, much. Yeah. Totally appreciate and your to time. You, yeah. yeah. Cheers, buddy. Pleasure. Pleasure, mate. Take we'll, care. We'll talk See you soon. later. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. <laughs> 
Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.